That's what it was all about. That's right. He was waxing on and waxing off. He didn't realize that that's what was making him good at martial art, you know? Well, that was because Daniel san Daniel san was yeah. doing the wax on. Yeah, that's what I mean. He was teaching him about discipline. And then all of a sudden, he could block punches. Yeah, all right. <laughs> so this study found a meta-analysis, and they looked at over 300 studies. They found that regardless of the experiment um, design, anxiety measure, anxiety type, gender, uh, country, sport, or intervention type or method, any type of intervention at all, there was a uh, robust improvement. <laughs> the word that they use was great. Robust improvement. I guess like mo mobility stuff is one of those things where if you don't push yourself a little bit into where it's uncomfortable, you're not going to get those positive changes. Or maybe you will, but it might take a lot longer. Yeah. So it's like everything. There's a payoff. Welcome back, everybody, to the Big Flex Podcast. Welcome back again, guys. We got a fun one today. Actually. Ooh, we got question and answers, and you know we enjoy the question answer podcast. One of our favorites. Yeah, one of our favorites indeed. Um, we've got questions from eight people. A couple of them are doubles. It's like ten so questions all up. A mm -hmm. um, couple we had to look up. Couple we didn't. So um, shall we get started? Actually, first before we get started, if you haven't done so already, like and subscribe. We are up to like almost eleven hundred subscribers. It's happened. So we jumped over that thousand mark pretty quick. Mm -hmm. We've set the date for the 1,100 kilo squats to be uh, at the end of January. And the very next day, we're going to try to do our 10,000 calorie each eating day. Yes. To re refeed from the 1,000 squats, which will be interesting. Um, and then, uh, so that's it. We've got, we've, got, we've got some work to put in. We've got some work to put in. But it's, even, it's bumped up, you know, almost 90 subscribers since just yeah. last week when we got over the thousand, which is fantastic. Um, uh, I, think, I think we should start this podcast off with... A question, Ooh. Uh, an important question. Well, it is a question and answer podcast. So I have a question. Okay. Who is currently a world champion holder? A world champion holder? World, world the, record holder. The current, who is a world champion and a record holder uh, who trains at this gym? The current M8 under 82 and a half kilo GPC bench press world record holder. What's his name? Dusan Mills, my dad. You gotta go. It doesn't matter. Oh, sorry, 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 sorry. It doesn't, it doesn't sorry, matter. Sorry, one second, one second, one second. So, um, repeat, repeat, repeat. Under 82 and a half kilo, world record holder and world champion. What's his name? It doesn't matter what your name is. Right? It kind of does matter. It does. His name is Dusan Mills. You might know him as Slim Mills. My dad, he is the current reigning. M8, under 82 and a half kilo bench press, GPC, world powerlifting champion. Um, and he then also set, he actually broke and set the world record three times. It was a tough heat. There was three out of yeah. four guys that were breaking it or, or were pushing to break it. And um, and he ended up getting the win and the world record at 107 and a half kilos. What a freaking roller coaster. 75 years old as well. From crushing it. Our end. All right? I'm sure you guys went through hell. But from our end, we were all back home and you were doing like posts uh, yes. updating uh, us on, on the and happenings. Megan and Fiona, they were like, they were screenshotting the live feed and putting it into the group so people could follow along. And just with that, explain it in a second with, with what happened and how exactly it happened. But he, he, he got the record and then he broke the record and then he matched the record and then he didn't have it. And then he was the champ, but not the world record holder. And then he was, and it just changed and changed and changed. Yes. And then, he was, he wasn't, he was, he wasn't, and now he irrefutably he is. is. Yes, he is on both. What and so, happened? So what day? happened was, all right, so basically he won, um, well, there was four guys in his division, and the current record was 102 and a half kilos, mm -hmm. okay? Three of the guys were competitive, so one guy we won't talk about too much, was, you know, a fair bit behind, but the three guys mm -hmm. opened at 95, 95, and 100 kilos, were yeah. the first openers for those three. And okay? the world record was 102.5. 102.5. Okay. All three got their openers. Yep. Okay, so dad's in the middle. The first guy went in at 95, then dad went in at 95, then the third guy went in at 100, yep. okay? Then, second attempts come around. Um, so at this point, dad is in um, equal second yeah. on, on, on score, but the way powerlifting works is if you have two guys that finish at the same weight, um, the lighter person wins. Yep. Okay. So technically, out of four guys, he's in third place after attempt one. So is what you're saying that strength is relative? Well, it's on. No, no. Strength is absolute. <laughs> is that what you're saying? Strength is absolute. <laughs> and as a fallback, it becomes relative. Um, so, so after the first lift, he's actually in third place. Yeah. Second lift, him and the two guys that are close to him all go for 103 to break the world record. Yep. The first guy. Which if. 
for people who, who don't know, when you go to break a record normally in comp, you have to break it by at least 2.5 kilos unless it's when, a national or world record. When, when, yeah, so when you're going to, to, you have to be doing it as a, a denomination of 2.5 kilograms. Yeah. Um, a multiple, sorry, of 2.5 kilograms. Yeah, sorry, sorry, not breaking a record. If you're trying yeah. to go up in front of someone, you have to beat them by 2.5 kilos unless it's for a national or world record in which you only have to go up by half a kilo. Correct. So they all broke the record at 103. So right? they all nominated... We're yep. all going to attempt 103. Yep. And beforehand, you know, you go to the um, coaching table, the coaching table, the uh, referee's table, and they actually look at your equipment, they stamp it. So like, this is approved equipment, blah, yep. blah, blah, all this sort of stuff. Um, all three guys go for it. The first guy misses it. Mm -hmm. Okay. He gets it, but he gets red lighted because he is, it, it was not the correct okay. form. Um, dad got his. Mm -hmm. So technically, dad's the first person to break the record 103 kilos. Yep. Fantastic. Then the guy after him also gets it, 103 kilos. Um, so at this point, we're not sure if he's got the record or not because he did get it first, but the other guy is lighter. So mm -hmm. I think what's happened technically here is that dad broke the record first. He's got the record, but the other guy is still leading the division because he's less body weight. Okay. So okay. in terms of the championship, in terms, in terms of, the of championship, winning the division, he was behind. He was in second place okay. at this point. Okay. Third lift comes along and I'm going to do this all over again on the strength Industry podcast when we do the recap, but just freaking, I don't care. Go listen. Um, and and third attempts come along. Three attempts only um, in powerlifting competitions. So mm -hmm. the third attempt comes along uh, and all three of them go for 105. Yeah. Okay. Uh, the first guy misses it, um, just doesn't get it. Yep. Dad gets it. So technically has now broken the world record twice yep. and set this new record. The third guy that was in the lead, he misses two red lights, Ooh. which means after three lifts, um, dad has won the division because he has the highest. He's the only one to get 105. Well, he won the division and he's the new world record holder. Yes, but After there the was it was up in the air on the there was seemed to be some confusion between the referee staff and the announcement table mm -hmm. because even after the second guy uh, got the hundred and five so in the first one when two people got the hundred and three yeah dad did it first but after the second guy did it they lifted hit they checked his equipment and lifted his arm up good world record so we were confused we're like oh does that mean he got the world record because he was lighter so there was confusion okay okay, okay. right from the, this point yeah. anyhow dad's got the um the the championship tied up that's yep. all good um but the record we're not sure so at the moment after three lifts he is the only one to get 105 so he is still currently the world record holder at yep. this point in time only person to get the 105 in powerlifting in GPC, if you are attempting a world record, so if you have had at least one successful lift out of your three, yep, and you're within 20 kilos of the world record, so it's like if you're like 100 kilos behind, you can't go for it. Yeah, yeah. Um, you can nominate for a fourth attempt and try to break a world to try record. to break the world record. Okay. It does not add to your total. So, so it, it doesn't will count not, for the division it, it competition. It will not affect the division competition that has already been finished. Yep. This is it, it gets judged as its own separate thing and it's only for the world record. Okay. Yeah. Both dad so dad's like, well let's let's take it to him. We'll go one oh seven and a half because he's gotta then get up there really as well. Perform, right? yeah. So we put one oh seven and a half in. The other guy also puts one oh seven and a half in. And that added to the confusion because we're like, Well, he must think that if he matches, he wins on body weight. Mm. because he's lighter, 200 grams lighter. Yeah. And there are some rules in the GBC rulebook that talk about body weight and records and stuff, but we'll get to that in a second. Um, basically, Dad gets out there, gets the 107 and a half. So for the third time in this meet, has now broken the world record. Yep. This other guy gets out there, also gets the 107 and a half. And again, after they checked his equipment, and they checked Dad's equipment as well, lift his ham up, you know, world record. They did the same thing for this other guy. So we're like, ah, shit, like maybe he... Doesn't get the world get record. So at this point, you were thinking that he is the division winner and the official champion, but he's not the world record holder. Correct. You're thinking that the, the 107.5 record goes to this other guy. Even though Dad got it first because yeah. he was lighter, and as he went second, he should have gone heavier, but didn't. So we're confused. Anyway, we talked to the refereeing staff, you know, and the and the refs came actually came over to us and like, look, there's been some confusion. The announcement table sort of gave the other guy the record, but your dad said it first. So we're just going to make sure everything's by the book. Mm -hmm. sent off the information to the GPC world record keeper. So there's a record keeper in GPC yeah. and said, look, this is the deal. They both went forward. The other guy was lighter. My, you know, Dusan did it first. The other guy went afterwards. Yeah. Um, calling is, no, first person to get the record gets the record. Once you set a record, it has to be broken. You can't yeah, match it. Exactly. Right? It doesn't matter if you're lighter or not. Correct. Yeah, they're in the same weight division, right? Correct. So he officially then, they changed it to he won. So they didn't change the it. They just, they just confirmed that dad is the record holder okay. and the champion. So for him to have 
broken that record, he would have had to have gone to 108. 108, correct. Okay, cool. So, but the the problem is you ha you can't change your attempt once on a fourth. Locked once you've in. locked in a fourth attempt, you've you can't change. Yep. So he should have seen the 107 and a half and, and forced to, to go on to 108. Yep. Which he didn't as well. So there was a bit of confusion, but in the end, it's all been confirmed to us in writing. We've got Dad's world record certificate. Um, so we got his what? world champion certificate and medal. Yeah. And then we've got an email confirmation from the record keeper saying awesome. he has the world record as well. So okay. what an exciting event that yeah, was. Yeah, that's awesome. That's really cool. Hoo All so right. So when are you going to break a world record for something? I, well, I've got now just a stable of athletes that are breaking world records for me, sir. Why don't you start training some people that are breaking world records, all right? Uh, yeah. All right. Okay. I'm good. Yeah, yeah, I just, yeah. I, I just like the spectacle, you know? I yeah, like okay. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. All yeah. right. So let's get into these questions. Perfect. Questions and answer time. First uh, question is from Megan. And yeah. Megan, um, bit of backstory, incredibly strong, um, two-time Australia's Strongest Woman for different federations, going across to World Strongest Woman competition come this November. We're heading over in, in about 10 days. And, um, and she has ear problems. So she has like a, a, not a cochlear implant, but the one that sits on the actual bone underneath the skin um, for hearing. And so she, her ears get a little funny when she lifts and she can really feel the pressure in her head, I'm assuming maybe more than what normal people would feel pressure in their head when they lift. And her yep. question was, what are the physiological effects of lifting really heavy on your eyes and ears, et cetera? Okay. Right? Um, and the answer is, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I looked, Megan, I looked um, at Google Scholar and PubMed and a bunch of things and I couldn't find any specific articles that looked at the intra pressures inside the head when you're lifting. There is stuff saying that your um, that your blood pressure, your diastolic pressure, and systolic pressure uh, increase dramatically when you lift heavy. But there was no like I couldn't find any papers talking about side effects of that. I imagine it would just be incredibly hard to test that. How how would you quantify? I think, like, how I think would that's you actually the I think that's the problem. And test the pressure in your. I think that's the problem. Yeah. They can take blood pressure when people are lifting, so they know that the blood pressure does skyrocket. Yep. Um, but that skyrockets whether you do or don't have a, a condition in your um in your in your head. So uh, ears, nose, and throat. Yep. So uh, I've never again. This now goes back to being a bit more um sort of like people talking. You yep. know. You know. It, it goes less An anecdotal becomes more anecdotal yeah. and less um, clinical in saying that I've never heard of anyone bursting an eardrum, let's say, for example, while lifting, while lifting. heavy. Yeah. I've seen plenty of blood noses. Generally, that you'll see more with the enhanced mm -hmm. lifters. Um, they already have very high blood pressure. And then when you are juicing and you're lifting crazy heavy weight, you'll see quite a lot of blood noses in sort of that Well, I that guess if you do a realm. bit of a thought experiment, the reason, the reason why your blood pressure is increasing and the reason why that happens is there's just a tremendous strain on your body so there's there's no reason why you wouldn't also if you're like holding your breath and bracing and breathing there's no reason why you wouldn't have just natural pressure build up in like your ears nose throat and stuff as well yeah um so i imagine there would be a little bit but there definitely is as to the effects it's kind yeah. of hard to say there's definitely increased pressure um is it detrimental to you who knows when we do bench shirt um you will get little blood vessels broken around your eyes right you'll get a little bit of bloodshot eyes or on your cheeks, you can see the little bit of um, uh, blood vessel burst. So we know that you know when you lift really heavy, yes, you can have some blood vessels burst. Um, you can sort of have, pop a blood nose, and people are certain people are more um, prone to blood nose as well. If you just have capillaries that are close to the surface yeah, of the yeah. skin and you have high blood pressure, you're more likely to get a blood nose. Yeah. So I guess the answer is if you are really worried about it, talk to your um, ENT, ears, nose, throat specialist, and they can maybe give you some more insight. But as far as we yeah. can tell, there's not really any. Studies out there saying, you know, if you're lifting and you have this issue, you're going to blow an eardrum or your eyes are going to pop out. I've I not feel heard like anything if like it that. Was, if it was a big deal and if it was more prevalent, you'd probably know about it. It would be very well known. Like it's it's well known that people get lifting ridiculous amounts of weight, get things like blood noses, and you see it enough for it to be yeah. known and about. You, and, and if, you, if that was a thing and it happened a lot more often, you'd hear about it a lot right. more often. There's definitely so. lots of cases of like hernia yeah, and yeah, all yeah. sorts of stuff like that, but I've not heard of anything to do with the ears, nose, throat. So sorry we can't be a bit more specific there, Megan, but uh, I think you know if you are worried about it, talk to an ENT. Talk to one ENT that actually lifts weights, not just your, you know, because just because they're a doctor doesn't mean they know everything. Talk to someone that is athletic at least and understands the forces that you're dealing with. All right. Yeah. Um, next question. You can answer this one. Oh, this is an interesting one, actually. Scott asks, uh, what are the health benefits of cardio? Like, why actually do cardio? Mm -hmm. um, and the answer is don't. It's silly. No, <gasps> the answer is not. This is actually a really interesting one. There's a plethora of information about 
how and a why. Plethora. Yes. Why Ooh. cardiovascular exercise is good for you. It is incredibly well documented and for a very long time. And uh, so this this next bit that I got here, uh, it's it's not from the most, most relevant paper. It's from a paper in 2012. But uh, I cited this because of how long it's been known that cardiovascular exercise is good for you. It's actually um, from Plato, which was around 400 BC, referred to medicine as the sister art, uh, sorry, uh, physical exercise as the sister art of medicine, uh, while an ancient Greek physician uh, noted, he actually wrote several essays on the aerobic fitness and strengthening muscles relating to cardiovascular exercise. So it's been very well documented for a very long time. That's that right. Cardio is good for you. Um, Do you have any any sort of like of the physiological reasons why in there? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So uh, the main reason why is because a sedentary lifestyle is bad for you and it is a huge risk factor for cardiovascular disease. Cardiovascular disease, uh, which you usually get from a sedentary lifestyle because you don't do any cardio or cardiovascular exercise, uh, leading cause of death in... Oh, sorry. Um, Some beard here? No, it's like a fly in my mouth. There's no flies in here. There's beard here. It was beard here. It was. It was. <laughs> Uh, I got a lot of beard going on. Yeah. Uh, leading factor of death in developing and developed countries. Uh, it's consistent worldwide. There's no biases for gender, geographic, socioeconomic. Uh, there's no boundaries like that. It just affects everyone all over the world equally. Regular cardio improves your lifespan, and it also improves the quality of that lifespan as well. Yeah. So it reduces a lot of risks. If, if I wrote cardiovascular disease and then I could just dot point list just so many things uh, that are bad for you because of that. Just yeah. there's too much to go into. Um, just search risk factors of, of CVD and you'll find it yourself. Yeah. There's lots of them. So it reduces the risk of a whole bunch of things. And that's the big one. The reason yeah. why you should do it is because it adds years to your life, keeping your cardiorespiratory system healthy. It also adds to the quality of that lifespan as well. So yep. it's not just living to be very old and decrepit and lying in a bed for 30 years yes. being able to be a lot healthier for a lot longer yeah also um all things aside so if you don't take into account nutrition and everything like mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. if you were to be sedentary versus active um, it's a huge indicator on whether people are going to become obese or not yeah right so increasing activity by doing things like uh you know doing doing cardio um is going to greatly reduce uh, the chances that you're going to be an obese person. Yeah. And with obesity, we know comes the whole metabolic smorgasbord of mm -hmm. things that uh, can go wrong. So yeah. heart disease, diabetes, all these things that will kill you yeah. are far more prevalent in obese um, demographics. And there were a lot of different studies that looked at differences in not just cardiovascular exercise, but cardiovascular health. So those are two very different things. So being, uh, being fit and being healthy, very different. So people who were just less sedentary, so who uh, had physical hobbies, who uh, like rode to work, who, who who did things in their daily life to increase their general physical activity, um, not necessarily exercise, general physical activity, were much healthier than people who were sedentary. And then people who did that and who uh, also exercised were incredibly healthy versus yeah. people who lived a sedentary lifestyle and only did cardiovascular exercise, but like didn't walk to work or didn't do anything physical. Like it doesn't matter what you do, any version or any increase at all in cardiovascular health greatly improves your quality of life and lifespan. Nice. Yeah. So there you go, Scott. Stay active, my man. Yeah. Okay. Live longer, live stronger. That's right. Uh, question three comes from Gavin. It's a multi-part one. He said, um, how long um, until you start to experience how long without lifting weights, basically, um, will it be before you start to experience muscular atrophy? Now, now there was another question. You, you, you rephrased the question here, all right? And no, no, I'm no, there very was a, upset no, about No, there that. was a third question which I removed, which was how come, even though I barely train, I'm still stronger than Nevin? He says that was you that wrote that up there, not him. That's a very, I wrote, I paraphrased because you paraphrased? what he said, what we weren't able to say in the podcast. Okay, so here's, here's, here's the deal. You got me on bench, Gav. I got you on squats and deadlift in total. So you just pipe down, young man, all right? Yeah. Okay, he's, okay. he's got me on everything upper body. I just thought it was important that we answered that question. Okay, the, well, just because, you know, he's he's big, strong boy, all right? <laughs> Shut your mouth. Um, you, <laughs> but he asked, how long until you'll experience muscular atrophy if you're not training? Yeah. Um, so look this one up, and of course, it's a like everything, a sliding scale. It's mm -hmm. not going to be if three, if 10 people all who weight train stop training, they're not going to experience the same amount of muscular atrophy. Mm -hmm. On average, you're looking at 
at the two-week mark is when you're going to start. So if you are lifting weights all the time and then you stop lifting weights, around the two-week mark, you can start to experience muscular atrophy, yep. right? Now, this That's is when you start to experience, not when yeah. you're considered untrained, because there's a marker for so. Being well, when you deload, well, right? when you deload, it, like if you're um, an athlete and you're training and you're really hard and it's getting more intense, and then you're getting ready for, let's say, the Olympics or a competition or whatever it is, and then you taper down your training, that whole taper period of deloading. Um, they don't recommend it goes more than two weeks because then you start to go into detraining. Like you detrain, your muscles start to atrophy, you lose strength, yep. right? So that is already known in performance um, science, I guess, yep. um, that you don't want to be deloading for more than two weeks. Yep. All right, so anything past two weeks, you'll start to experience some level of muscular atrophy. Yep. Okay, where your muscles, and muscular atrophy, guys, is the, diff is the opposite of hypertrophy, which is bodybuilding getting bigger, is your muscles decreasing in size. And okay. that, that isn't all of a sudden at the two-week mark, you're going to lose 10 kilos no. and 30 kilos on your squat bench. and it's a, it's, a, it's a sliding scale. It starts to kick yep. in after that point. And again, it's different for everyone. Yep. So if one person works a desk job and the other person is a scaffolder, mm -hmm. right, and, and they both train really hard, let's say four or five times a week, and then they both stop, well, your desk job person is going to get muscular atrophy quicker than the person that is living an active job and an active lifestyle. And probably experience it a lot more as well. Correct. Yeah. Also, um, that keeps going even further. Let's say you have an injury, you break your arm, um, your upper arm, and you're in a full arm cast and you can't do anything. That person is going to experience muscular atrophy a lot faster yeah. than someone that is just sitting at home, hanging out for two weeks. Because they're still moving around and doing things, yeah. right? So it really becomes sort of activity and lifestyle dependent on how much muscular atrophy you'll You'll, you'll have. And you can push it even further to that too. Like, let's say you're in a car accident, you hit your head, and then you're in a coma for three weeks. Mm -hmm. In that three weeks, not moving your body at all, you'd see a huge amount of muscular atrophy in comparison to someone who's just not training but still like going to work as an accountant. You know right, what I mean? so 100%. Like, it really depends on the level of activity. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's also different types of muscular atrophy that can be induced by disuse. So that's what we're talking about there. So yep. like you're just not working out, you have a broken arm, you're in a coma, whatever yep. it is. Then there's also neurogenic muscular atrophy, which let's say um, ALS, like neurological disorders. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you could have, let's say, like um, nerve damage, nerve damage down your yep. spine. There's a lot of research on spinal nerve damage and yep. muscular atrophy. So again, some things you can reverse. So if you're just not working out and you start working out again, you will um, reverse your muscular atrophy. No way. Yeah, no, it's wild, right? <laughs> so, so there's that. But some yeah. of these neurogenic or neurological disorders, like you can't recover from. Yeah. Sometimes working out will help delay the onset of muscular yep. atrophy. But some things, you know, you're fighting an uphill battle against, unfortunately. For you, Gav, you're just working too much, mate. So, you know, you just got to prioritize your time a bit better and come yeah. to the gym a bit more. Um, he also asks, you know, can you maintain strength uh, without training? So there's a couple of different components here. You can maintain um, a certain amount of strength and a certain amount of muscular size with reduced training. If, like we said before, if you stop altogether and there's a disuse, um, you will experience muscular atrophy and your strength will decrease, right? But once you have attained a certain amount of strength and muscle mass, it takes less stimulus to yeah. maintain it. Yeah. So if you're training, let's say, four or five times a week really hard to get to a certain level, you very well might be able to maintain that level of strength and, um, and size. Maybe not like top-end strength, but like for sets of six and stuff. Yep. Um, off maybe two or three sessions a week. Even, or Even completely, even not training at all. I feel like over the, over the years, I've found that... Uh, and this is the longer that I've trained, the more I've noticed this. I don't train for like the longest I've gone without training was after an injury, like three, three, four months, something like that. Yeah. I pretty much kind of hit the ground running. It didn't really take me that long to get back to similar numbers. All the science says this as well is that it depends on where you're starting from. Yeah. Yeah. So I imagine if you've been training for quite a long time and then all of a sudden you have six months off, it's not going to take you a whole a lot of time to get back in because I imagine that changes your, your bone density, your hormone profile, like your body is you literally built it yeah differently so that's not going to change if you've been training for 10 years and you stop for six months it's going to take a lot longer than six months to you know like completely change the structure of your body again. correct and and you can actually get it back a lot faster so yeah, a great example of this faster. is between 2011 when i used to do strongman and I yeah. yoke was my favorite thing mm -hmm. i didn't run a yoke i probably ran five yokes in 10 years in a decade right yeah. and within two months of training yoke i was already back up to almost pb um, weights. Yeah, that was crazy. So, so really, um, once you've built a base, 
yes, it will, your muscle size will decrease, your strength will decrease, but you'll get it back faster. If you've built a certain base and um, you reduce your training load, like Gav comes in maybe once a week, maybe twice a week. He Actually, does a little bit of stuff at home. He's been in like three times a week. Oh, that's great. Oh I think it's just you to be honest. Man, get out. Stop it. <laughs> Stop it. Um, let's just say on average, he's been training once or twice yeah, a week. Yeah, yeah. He was training four times a week. So he's going to maintain a good level of strength. Now, top end strength is a little different yeah. because one rep max, even though it's sort of counterintuitive, is a skill. So having that muscular control, muscular coordination, that central nervous system, your brain talking to your muscles is a skill-related thing. So if you stop doing that skill, you reduce your capacity for it. Yeah. So your top-end strength might come down a little bit, but you can still maintain a good base of strength and a good you know, muscular size off a, off a reduced workload. I think a good way to put it would be that it doesn't reduce your potential, but it reduces your current capacity. Yes. So you could still work back up to getting previous numbers or PBs, but like at current, if you took six months of training, if we threw in a testing session right at the beginning of that block after six months and saw what you could get for your one rep max versus your 10 reps, your one rep max is going to be rubbish in comparison and it just takes time to build you back up. But yeah. once you start training again, like everything jumps and jumps and jumps, mm -hmm. your, your volume wouldn't really be that affected. Yeah. Just say that your top end capacity is affected, but the potential to get back to it is, is still easily there. Yeah, and yeah. this just came to me just now, so just riffing on, on this is, it, it would probably also depend on your um, muscle fiber um, allocations as well. So we all have a certain amount of fast twitch that we can't change, a certain mm -hmm. amount of slow twitch that we can't change, and you get a certain amount of sort of trainable muscle fibers yep. that you can change depending on how you train. Um, if you are someone that has predominantly slow twitch, like you're not a powerful explosive person, you are just built for endurance, yep. um, that person probably wouldn't lose as much strength as a fast twitch athlete because those fast twitch needs they need the stimulus to be yep. explosive and to train. Whereas if you have just primarily slow twitch and you took six months off, you probably still grind out like a 10 RM pretty similar, like like yeah, on yeah. your on your like volume sort of strength volume, you know? Yeah, I think so. Interesting. So there you go, Gav, a bit of information there for you. Yeah, good question. All right. Um, why don't you hit up Gordon's question here, Adrian? Okay. Uh, how long until... Oh, no, 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 <laughs> <laughs> uh, Is there a path to fitness without pain? That is a very good question. Um, yeah. The answer is no. The answer is yes. The answer is the answer is both. The answer is both. The answer is it depends. It, it depends, depends on what you want out of your training. Uh, I was actually watching a show on Netflix last night. Um, Idris Elba was was um, uh, commentating. What's it called when you do that? Narrating. Narrating. Um, and it was all just about these insane uh, athletic endeavors where people are doing these like races through like some of the most the toughest terrain in the world, through the deserts and all, all sorts of crazy stuff, some like really dangerous, um, uh, like long distance bike rides, uh, all sorts of insane sports. And the whole theme of the episode that I watched was uh, people trying to conquer pain and just do insane, ridiculous things so far away from what you even see at, at the Olympics. It's like the point is to endure pain. And all of these different athletes were talking about why they do it. And they they were doing these- Sounds terrible. Unbelievable, ridiculous feats of athleticism. Um, pushing their bodies so much harder than they had to. And these things are relatively unknown. I've never even heard of them before. Uh, but they all, the the, car, the the theme was about personal development. Some people just want to see what they can do. Some people want to see like how close to death they can get without dying. Some people want to push themselves to their absolute limits. And okay. so they enjoy, oh. hold on, they okay. enjoy a great deal amount of pain to get there. And that would be the most ridiculous extreme that you could get to, right? These people are doing just, silly stuff but on the other end of the scale some people just want to kind of stay a bit fit and be healthy and not really push themselves that hard and you can get pretty fit taking it really easy as well like it doesn't have to be an extreme yeah i dare say gordon doesn't want to like push himself to the brink of death to see no, how things are going no. like as most people don't want to so let me get you back here gordon okay so <laughs> so uh, i think yes there absolutely is a path to fitness without pain yeah right let's just start with all right um, we already talked about it this podcast, a great indicator of, of how someone is going to have a good quality of life and yep. live for longer is just by being more metabolically healthy. Um, one of the easiest ways to do that is to not be obese, is to lose adipose tissue, to lose fat. So if we want to do that, there's a couple of ways you can do it. You can do it extreme and you can smash yourself with hardcore intervals on an air bike and circuit training. And man, I tell you what, it's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to be a little painful. Yep. You'll probably lose the weight a little faster if you did that. But in saying that, Gordon, if you were to go for, or if someone was to go for a walk five days a week for half an hour each day and spend an extra 10 minutes warming up on a bike 
nice and light, an extra 10 minutes cooling down on a bike, yeah. all of that adds up, yeah. right? So it's all stuff that's gonna help contribute to losing body fat and therefore increasing your fitness level. And it's not painful. No. You just gotta find yeah. things, that are, that things that are enjoyable, that are active. So that's one thing. Um, um, the World Health Organization actually classifies the amount of recommended exercise, cardiovascular exercise per week. And it's five times a week at low, low to moderate exercise, five times a week for 30 minutes. And then there's um, medium exercise. I think it's uh, three to four times a week for 45 minutes. And then vigorous exercise um, two to three times a week, I think for a total of about 60 minutes or something like that. Um, no, it's twice a week for something like, as a total of 60 minutes in the week. And so if you look at the World Health Organization's recommendations, the, the lower end of that is is very low. So 30 minutes a day over five days of the week, low to, to medium exercise. That's just a brisk walk for most people. You can go for a brisk walk and not feel any pain. So it's very, very manageable to be able to do, like hit the, the base standards of what's considered to be uh, healthy for the average person. Right. Yeah. Um, also, you know, if we were to relate it to your training in here, Gordon, I know Adrian's got you doing a lot of mobility work. Um, and look, it is, un it is uncomfortable, <laughs> it is sore. But if you've had quite a while of inactivity and you don't have that movement and mobility, it, it's uncomfortable to get it back. Yep. But you're improving. Like if you looked at you now to when you first started, like your movement oh, is so much better. Huge. Right? Difference. So, yeah. and again, I guess like mo mobility stuff is one of those things where if you don't push yourself a little bit into where it's uncomfortable, you're not going to get those positive changes. Or maybe you will, but it might take a lot longer. Yeah. So that it's like everything. There's a payoff. Exactly. Yes, yeah. If you experience a little bit more pain here, but it's going to like, get you there a little bit faster, right? Or maybe you Not just do it faster. Yeah. If you, you push yourself a little bit harder, you'll just get more out of it. So Correct. it really depends on what you want to get out of it. Whether yeah. you want to just idle by, be a little bit healthy and just kind of look after yourself a bit, but you're not really too fast or you want to do a marathon through a desert. <laughs> One, the payoff is really what you put in is what you're going to get out of it. Yeah. So it depends on what you're willing to tolerate. But yeah, I think the answer is, yeah, there definitely can be a path yeah. to fitness without, without pain. Yeah. Um, it really depends on what your goals are in the end. Yeah. 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 Cool. That's a good question. Um, Sophie had a really interesting question. Um, and it, hers was, is how do I improve anxiety before big lifts? Like she has a problem with psyching herself out sometimes before she gets into, you know, really heavy lifting. Yeah. This was a really interesting one. And I, I actually read through quite a bit of studies. It, it led me from one thing to the next thing to the next thing until I found uh, kind of the info, the, the crux of the information that's Ooh, used for that. Great word. Crux. Crux. And I've got some good words as well. Rotund, robust, Rot crux. Robust. There's, there's and, a, I'll get and, to the word robust. You and, give me a minute. And penultimate. Um, so basically um, with that one, what I found was that the main models that are used to measure anxiety, which I needed to find a baseline first. So what is anxiety in terms of sports psychology? Um, one of the main measuring systems used is called the SAS. Uh, it is a sports anxiety scale okay. and there's two of them. The original was in 1997, which is called the sport competition anxiety test, which is a 15 question questionnaire. And the SAS-2 is a sport anxiety scale, which was revised in 2006. Um, and it is according to a few meta analysis, 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 that sounds better. Let's go with analysis. According to a few other studies, uh, that was irrefutably more accurate, basically, um, the newer revised one. So it measures or assesses competitive trait anxiety experienced by athletes both before and during uh, competition. And that would be your baseline first to test your level of anxiety um, and like the feelings you have about sport in general. Um, regardless of your sport, whether it's team sport and individual sport, this is used across genders, across countries, across it's like one theoretical model used worldwide. Uh, now there was a huge meta-analysis done in 2021 by the Singapore Sports Science and Medicine Center. Uh, they found, can I just pause this for a second and say, Adrian, this is some, I like this. What? You just get on there finding good quality information for these, yeah, for I these answers. It's really interesting. It's beautiful. It's great. Yeah. 2021 relevant. Meta-analysis, it's fantastic. I know. Look, continue. Yeah, the last time we did this, you were like, oh, I want you to do a question on podcast. I made PowerPoint presentations and yeah. you got a little carried you're away. You're stepping up here. I love this. <laughs> I got this. Um, so this study found a meta-analysis and they looked at over 300 studies. They found that regardless of the experiment um, design, anxiety measure, anxiety type, gender, uh, country, sport, or intervention type or method, that basically every type of intervention, psychological intervention in to, to do with sport. So whether they had a coach intervening or a sports psychologist or at any level, any type, 
any type of intervention at all, there was a uh, robust improvement. Oh. The word that they use was great. Yes. Robust improvement uh, in anxiety levels, which means that anxiety decreased quite a bit. So uh, the ways that you can deal with it is, I would say... Oh, we, we should, literally we should, anything. Like just reach out for literally anything. any help from anyone. So I'll, I'll put, we should put the link up to this um, sports anxiety scale because it's just a self-filled questionnaire and you can do it and redo it and redo it over time. Um, there's a lot of information in... It's very well documented in different ways to deal with um, anxiety and stress in sport. Mindfulness, bit of meditation, lots, breathing methods, everything. Of, right. Yeah, so there's there's all sorts of different things. It's kind. Of, I didn't really come up with anything specific because it's a. There's so many different things coming yeah. out all the time. You know, I think there's quite a lot. Is it, let's let's give her what some homework. All right, I want you to look up breathing techniques for to reduce stress and anxiety. And it's, I'll mention this because, Dad, if you listen to the last Strength Institute podcast I had, Dad, on before we left for the Worlds, mm -hmm. and he was talking about breathing. Um, I asked him, you know, do you get nervous? And this? he goes, no, I really focus on my breathing. Mm -hmm. And from years of experience and working in, you know, different business businesses um, and some training that they had gotten yep. uh, was, you know, you're, you might – you can try to tell yourself that you're not anxious and that you're fine. Well. But if you're breathing shallowly or rapid or you're not taking those deep breaths – you're, you're nervous and you, your body's not lying. So well, it's, it's not. And the, the markers for this is they can very, there's um, fine physiological tests that they can do. It's accurate physiological tests where they um, test your somatic nervous system versus like they do blood pressure, um, EEGs, EKG, all sorts of stuff. So a lot of research has been put into this aspect of sport, as you can imagine why, with high level athletes. Um, so you, yeah, 100%, there's a very, very, it's not just mental. The mental aspects affect the physical aspects. And you look at Wim Hof being able to like do the stuff that he does. You look at um, in the military, they do um, variations of box breathing and breathing and breathing techniques. Meditation has been used for a very long time. Long, long and time. Very effective to control people's yeah, nervous systems yeah. Um, to an extent. Um, they found actually, this was an interesting part as well. I just love this. Uh, robust evidence base uh, for the use of psychological interventions to help reduce competitive anxiety. They found that higher level, higher level athletes are, get a lot more out of it than lower level athletes as well. So yeah. as the competition steps up and the, the athlete becomes more, I guess, capable or they're competing at a higher level, the interventions tend to be more effective. I as dare well. say they're probably more, you know, if, at the highest level, they're probably more diligent in doing the activities and the yeah, exercises yeah. and they have a better understanding of their own psyche and physical ability anyway. Exactly. Whereas someone yeah. starting off might not really understand what understand it's all about. Understand as much. And uh, the last point that this meta-analysis went over, there was a separate analysis that suggested that a medium to large size effects for cognitive anxiety and self-confidence. And this was separate to sport in general. So they had um, a separate uh, questionnaire that's just like personal uh, sort of stuff. And so self-confidence, self-esteem and cognitive anxiety. So just general anxiety. Um, any sort of intervention at all, even not related to daily life, just sport helped overall as well. Uh, so there are many different types of interventions, but just engaging in literally any type of intervention yeah. can help. So one example is breathing. They're just like general counseling. You can go speak to a sport psychologist. You can speak to a coach. Um, we can go and research and look at a bunch of different methods that you can use as well. And Basically, just start doing stuff, and it will, and it will help. So um, yeah, we'll put the links up for the the SAS, uh, the 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 questionnaire, and start there would be a good idea. Nice, good man, great research. I like that. All right, Actually, you didn't do the research, but great finding and disseminating in that research. It's great. It's very robust. Yes, those. It's by a, the way, it's a rotund effort. Those so. were the exact words yeah. that they use: medium to small improvements. But they had all the 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 P values and other stuff up yeah. there. But uh, yeah, robust yeah. evidence. What am I, I've never seen that in a, in a scientific paper before. Um, Ash T asks, what are the three best martial arts in our opinion? Because <sighs> she does karate and I always tease her about doing karate. So you're doing a fake, uh, and I hope you enjoy doing your fake martial arts there. It's not fake martial arts, it kind of is. It's just not, you know, it's not how, a many, fake martial how many fake wooden blocks do you need to break in real life? I don't know. It's not a fake martial art. It's just not, it's just not as effective. Look, it's not a good one anymore. Before all of the good martial arts were made. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it, it's very old, right? I actually don't know too much of the history of karate. But I don't I'm, know either. It's, Look, it's, it's very old. Ash. But um, it's it's since been kind of shown to be not very effective. I just like, you know... Versus other martial arts. Everyone loves Bruce Lee, the Kung Fu man. But there's a reason why no one does Kung Fu in the UFC, right? Yeah. And yes, there have been one or two good karate guys in the UFC. 
few and far between, and they're great athletes, and it's not because they did karate. They're they still mixed. They're still they mixed martial artists. Only do karate. right, exactly. Yeah, and yeah. um, and and people like I just you're moving weird. But like what? Is, because it's like karate. Anyway, anyhow, don't get me wrong. Karate Kid, love it. All right, one of my favorite <clears throat> movies as a kid. Yeah, like Cobra Kai, love the TV series. Yeah. Love me a bit of karate. All yeah. right, but in terms of what our opinion of the best three martial arts are, I've got my opinions. Do you want to go first? Or do you want me to go first? Uh, you go first. Okay, best three. Wait, wait, Real life you application. Go, I go. You go. I go. Well, no, because then it's not the my best three. It's like a hybrid. It's a weird. Okay, fine. You go. Demented fish frog. Fine. Um, so. My opinion, top three, wrestling, number one. Well, they're not in, in order. But just the top the, three. The top three. Okay. Wrestling. Yep. Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Yep. Muay Thai. They're the three. I was going to say if you, exactly. If you only had... Yeah, right, thing. you were. Yeah, I was going to pick the same three. No, look. I was. Yeah, like, yeah. BJJ <laughs> is, I think, number one. BJJ is probably the most valuable and most effective form of martial art because literally anyone can practice it. Mm -hmm. Literally anyone. Like most people with bad knees, bad backs, like most people can do BJJ. And yeah. if we're talking about effective martial arts, like someone approaches you on the street and pushes you to the ground, yeah. usually like fist fights end in a couple of seconds. They just grab onto each other and get all, all crazy. No one starts doing backward spinning heel clicks kicks and back handsprings and yelling like Bruce Lee in the streets. Yeah. Usually it ends in a headlock or... Most reason. fights end up on the ground, I would yeah, say. 100%. Yeah, 100%. Um, and so I think I think this was sort of shown really early in the UFC days of when yeah. people from different disciplines came in and Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu dominated everyone because yeah. they didn't know what was happening. They would just they'd wake up with a... With a they were choked out or they're yeah. about to break their arm or leg, right? Yeah. So Jiu-Jitsu is so incredibly important. And it's been really interesting to see the, the evolution of mixed martial arts yeah. because what happened was you started to get some really good wrestlers yeah. that then the jiu-jitsu guys couldn't get them onto the ground or what would happen is the, the wrestler would get, take them down, be in a top position, but be so strong and have such a good base from wrestling, they weren't getting submitted and they would just ground and pound them but out. also even other striking uh, martial arts, the wrestlers would just get their mitts on, pick you up and slam you on the floor. Like they cover Correct. distance really quickly. Unless, yeah, unless you could get a knockout quickly, exactly. you were done. And the wrestlers are usually pretty big and stocky and they can tank a couple of hits to get in close. And once right. they get their hands on you, it's, it's kind and of so that, So that's the first The first two. I think it's so important to be able to take people down, stop from getting taken down, mm -hmm. understand your body weight while you're grappling and then yep. to be able to submit people standing or on the floor. Well, that's so the, those the two cover about, all of that? The good thing about wrestling is that it starts standing, right? You can do a lot of wrestling standing, whereas BJJ mm -hmm. is all groundwork and the two of those mixed together. Yeah. Uh, I mean, effective. most of the time in a jiu-jitsu competition, people will just sit on their butt and then just exactly. like start yeah, <laughs> grappling, yeah, which yeah. is not really real-life application. No, no. So then that leads me up, well, I need some sort of striking in there. So what's striking? Like boxing is, yeah, if you were to put up a boxer and a Muay Thai fight, fighter and say you're only allowed to punch, yeah, the, I'm sure the boxer would probably win. But the fact that, um, that Muay Thai is elbows, knees, kicks, punches, yeah. Learn how to clinch and control while standing. Yep. I feel like it's just the more in impressive, terms of an effective, um, it's more effective. In terms of effective, an effective striking style, it, it arguably probably is one of the best because it yeah. incorporates that little bit of wrestling. There's like sweeps and things like that, but it's it's not trying to do any weird, funny like arm bars and difficult moves. And it's it's just very effective. Uh, yeah, like it's all about just trying to like hurt someone. Right. Yeah. It's hurt it's someone's shins. If, if they ah, oh, damn it, I should have. No, I should have prepared this. Um, Joe Rogan talked about this in uh, one of his podcasts. And it was the first time I saw it. And then I, I watched the video that he brought up. And he talked about early on in the UFC, there was no leg kicks. They just boxed. And so the first guy to come in with leg kicks, is, is, I think it was like a big Mary guy. I mean, they were allowed he to was, leg kick. Just people but people just kicking. didn't. And yeah. he started chopping people in half. And people just had no defense against it. So he would just walk around They didn't around know how to check kicks at the time. Yeah. yeah, just kicking people's legs. And they would eventually like not be able to stand up anymore. And the refs called them on a TKO. And so all of that was were just low thigh kicks. And yeah. he... Well, it was savage to watch people's legs were all ballooned up, like very clear, like leg muscle damage and stuff like that. Since that happened, yeah. the predominant type of uh, martial art for striking, leg kicks is and checks and stuff, has, has been Muay Thai. It's been the most effective. Yeah. Because yeah. um, you don't see people, uh, too many of them, doing like backwards spinning heel kicks and, and, and stuff like that. People try and be showy with it, but you very rarely see knockouts with a, a like a capoeira kick or, or anything like that. You see a couple of taekwondo kicks every now and again. Every that, now and that, again, that but for the most finishes. part, most people are very proficient in the basics of of, uh, of kickboxing yeah. or of, of Or, or they'll, use, they'll use that, that kickboxing to set up knockouts or to set up takedowns yeah. or something like yeah. that. But yeah, I think I think really 
you know, find yourself a good MMA gym because because that will then incorporate all of these martial arts, right? Yeah. But if I had to limit it to just three, I think they're, well, I think we agree there. I think we think that they're the most effective three wrestling, jiu jitsu, or Brazilian jiu jitsu, and, and Muay Thai. In terms of like literally effective fighting styles, 100%. Yeah. But then you this is the, for unarmed contact. Like, I guess if you want to be like good at like with weapons, there should be some, some kung fu stuff. Sure, yeah. Ninjutsu, right? Um, but uh, I would say if you're looking at it from a different angle, like a lot of people look at martial arts for different reasons. Oh. Like, the, hang on, talk about different angles. Which angle oh, are we? Oh, I don't know. Uh, I'm not sure. Um, they're talking about it from a different angle. The, the discipline side, things like karate and uh, lots of different martial arts that have been around for a very, very, very long time that focus a lot on like mental discipline, whereas mixed martial arts doesn't as much. It's not the main focus. You know, Excuse we, me? Where the whole reason why people do things like, oh, hold on, the whole reason okay. why people do things like karate and breaking boards and stuff, it's, to practice the mental discipline. It's not so much about practicing the mental discipline to be good at fighting. It's like a separate thing. Whereas in MMA, like if you're not disciplined enough, you get choked out, right? Like you, so you, it's part of it. You have to do it, but it's, a, it's almost like the whole part of these other martial arts where it revolves more around that. The ideology is different. So I feel like I, that's why I think mm. a lot of other people value different martial arts for different reasons. But there's value or there's yeah. all sorts of value in, in all sorts of martial arts. I don't, I mean, I feel like, Jeez, when I when I did Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, there's a hell of a lot of discipline involved. Well, I'm not saying there's not. Yeah, I'm just saying it's not the main focus. Okay, you know what I mean? Yeah. All right, well, Mr. Miyagi, you know Look. all the lessons that he taught you as a kid. Yeah, that's what it was all about. That's right. He was waxing on and waxing off. He didn't realize that that's what was making him good at martial art. You know? Well, that was because Daniel San Daniel San was yeah. doing the wax on. Yeah, that's what I mean. He was teaching him about discipline. And then all of a sudden, he could block punches. Yeah, all right. <laughs> okay, so I hope that answers your question there, Ash. Um, moving on to Karen. Um, does appearance improve performance? This is another interesting one, actually. What are we talking about here? Is in like, if you wear red, will you run faster that day? Like, I, The I'm answer confused. is yes. Because red is the fastest red color? Red is the fastest color. <laughs> Karen, yes. Red is the fastest color, and if you dress in red, it will improve your performance. We, we I think, talked about this a little bit before as well, um, whether she was talking about uh, like physical appearance as in like clothing and that sort of thing, like how you present yourself versus how you literally aesthetically look, which are two kind of different things. And I think both, yes. I think, I think a little do. bit both, yes. Yeah, look, yes. If, if you, um, especially if you work good, if, if you're a confidence player, yeah, you want to look good and feel good about yourself. Yeah. You get yeah. into the gym, you're like, you know what, should, should I, look, I look good, so I'm ready to lift some weights. Yeah. That absolutely will have a positive effect on performance. Look good, feel good. Yeah, look good, 100%. feel good. Feel yeah. good, be good. Exactly. I think that's a good one. Like everyone wants to feel good in their own skin and, and just putting a you know an outfit on that makes you feel good about yourself. If it makes you feel less insecure and more confident that you can go out and have a good session, then that is improving your performance. 100%. Versus agree being a little shy, a little insecure, maybe not doing an exercise because you don't like the way that it makes your body look while you're holding a thing in a place or something. Like yeah. that, if you can do your whole session and feel great about it and feel happy about it, yes. Yeah. Uh, and then aesthetically, I mean, well, yeah. It's that I guess, well, I guess like, you know, appearances in like, yeah, you have, you appear to have long arms. And like, yes, I'd be good at deadlifting. Like, I guess like, is that what you more, mean? More appearance like, uh, like dad bod versus a six pack, I guess like the aesthetic, which actually that's a tricky one. Cause if you look at a lot of, uh, a lot of powerlifters, very unassuming, not a lot of powerlifters that don't look lean, shredded, jacked. I've seen a lot of powerlifters at like even in, in the, the, usually in the heavier weight classes, even, even the state level comps. Yeah. A lot of guys don't even look like they're trained and they're very strong. Right. Very, they've got that typical dad bod. So they got like a little bit of body fat on them and yeah. they're obviously not doing bodybuilding, but they're really strong I think guys. maybe we could say that that's sport dependent. So depending on the sport you're mm. playing or partaking in, uh, might have different physical demands. And so, mm -hmm. yes, how you look, like maybe some things require you to carry a little bit more body fat and some things don't. And so depending on what you do, that physical appearance might actually affect your performance differently. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. I, okay. I think, yeah. Also, we know that having a beard puts 10% on your squat. It does. So that's a thing. It does. Um, yeah. Science. Yeah. Science. Um, and we're going to finish off with Deb, who has a few questions um, today. Ooh. And so, and because Deb, and we miss you, Deb, come back. She moved down know, south, right? but she watches all these and she partakes, she sends me emails, she sends questions, she answers, she likes, she yeah. comments. Everyone needs to be more like Deb, I all like right? Deb, I like that Deb is still part of the mix. Yes, yeah. Deb is still very much part of our community here. Yes, and so we're going to definitely answer your questions, Deb. Yeah. Um, is First one, why do they use a thicker barbell for strongman? 
Okay, that barbell is called an axle, all right? Um, and it's just basically saying, you know, this big fat bar is like an axle of a truck or something. Yep. And the reason why they use that in strongman is because strongman is all about being a spectacle. It's all about the performance. It's all about trying to be entertaining. And so why use a barbell when you can use a truck axle with tires on it? Yeah. It looks so much cooler. Yeah, why not so, just do a normal deadlift with four tires? Yeah, and, and that's why you, know, you can't actually grab it. You got to use uh, straps to hold yourself to it because it's so thick. But that is literally the reason why they use axles in Strongman and non-powerlifting is because mm -hmm. it's all about the spectacle and how it looks and being cool. Yeah. 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 There's no like physical or performance reason why you would ever use a, a fat bar over a thin bar, you actually can't grab a fat bar when they're that, that thick and have heavy weight on them. It so cool. it looks cool. Um, that is literally the, and I hope you weren't hoping for like some like really technical, technical reason. Technical It's because it's, it just looks cool. Strongman is yeah. all about being different and impressive. And I think Dan has talked about this in one of the other, in the, the podcast, yes, that, yeah. the podcast we had with him. Um, he talked about uh, it, having its roots in, uh, in, in performance as well, entertainment. Yeah. And so it, it just has to look cool to keep people's attention. And that's why they do a lot of the events that they do as well. Very specifically, that's why they do airplane pulls, truck pulls, like car yokes, all that sort of stuff. They could probably be stronger doing stricter kind of lifts and make it better for the athlete, but it just doesn't look as cool. That's right. Yeah. It's got to be. It's all about being get those guy cool points. pull a plane with the... With his teeth one time on TV. That was insane. I don't see it with his teeth. I've seen yeah. the harnesses. But. Yeah, he, had a, he had a thing and it was just arrow biting yeah. it. Cool shit I ever saw. <laughs> um, yeah. Right. Um, she also asked, next question. Can you explain a bit more about programming? So periodization, volume, you know, deloading, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, yeah. That's I mean, kind of a big question. It's a big question. That's kind of a big one. So I guess, all right. With, basics now. Yeah, with programming, yeah. Um, I guess in terms of, there's a few things you need to think about. One is... I think, I think a big one, exercise selection, Yep. right? So we are going to try to pick, when we're doing programming for someone, what is their goal? Is their goal to be a really good power lifter? Because it is, if it is, we have to have squatting, benching, deadlifting in their program. Mm -hmm. Zero point um, doing some weird obscure thing that has zero crossover, right? So exercise selection is something that we do dependent on what the person's goals are. And parts of the... Um, principles of strength training uh, one of the main principles is specificity mm -hmm. so if you want to get good at bench pressing you have to do bench pressing yep. okay um, in terms of periodization because you've said periodization volume you know deload well, volume and deloading are part of your periodization yep. so if you were to basically do the same exercise and the same volume like three sets of five every three three twice a week every week for three years you're gonna stop improving because you're not yep. getting the stimulus. So we use periodization as a way to change the um, to change the intensity um, of your sessions. We do that by altering the volume. So we might make you do more volume or less volume, but at a heavier weight. So we're increasing the intensity or the feel of that. Um, and after a certain amount of weeks of doing that, if we're gonna be working on getting, you know up 5%, up 5%, up 5%, we're dropping the reps down and down and down. Well, at the end, if we kept doing that, you'd just be maxing out on one rep every single time. And again, yep. we're not getting the stimulus then. Yep. So, and we'll also lead to overtraining and detraining. So where you're not only stop improving, but you'll start to go backwards a little bit because yeah, so you're run down. You're a not different recovering. stimulus to adapt from uh, uh, as you move through different phases of your, your program. Otherwise, yeah, you'll just, you'll hit a wall and you'll never recover from. It. And that's what a lot of people say they plateau because they don't do periodization. They just try and keep pushing and pushing and pushing mm -hmm. and pushing to no end. Um, I guess you could, I guess you could talk about the, like the smaller cycles. It's like mesocycles, microcycles. So if you're looking at, let's say like a, a year program and someone's going for a competition at the end of the year, you can break that up, right? Where you've got, uh, you have two months, say it will be a volume. So Two months will be out of a different type of like a maybe a mix between volume and strength. And then you go two months working up to a peaking block and then a peaking block. So it's all broken up into different sections based on what type of, of program that you're doing. Yeah. So it, there's it, and that's so, so much variation in that based on the sport, if it's a team sport, an individual sport. Um, but it's all based off of that same principle of periodization. Yeah. And, and yeah, you just basically have to break everything into smaller blocks. Yeah. Um, so like I said, you, if you're talking about, let's say, um, uh, let's say a, a sporting season, a rugby season, yeah. right? So you have your competition season and you have your off season, mm -hmm. right? And so your off season, 
you might break into two parts, off-season and pre-season, mm-hmm. right? Um, because off-season is really where you're just not really doing anything. Mm-hmm. Pre-season is when you're getting yourself to the point where we are ready to start full rugby season. And then you have your competition season, which is the whole season itself. And you might call that pre-competition, you know, competition, and then you might have the last two weeks, which is the finals, that you want to be peaking for, mm-hmm. you know? So you're trying to plan these things out. In terms of, um, I guess, looking at a smaller level, um, how do we pick the sets and the reps and the weights for things. A good training tool that I use is Prolipin's table, which comes from Russian strength coach uh, back in the day who was like a wizard with strength training. Mm -hmm. And it basically gives um, percentages. So like if you're working at 90% or above of what your max thing is, um, your max lift in an exercise. Let's say you're doing squats, you're doing... um, uh, well, we want to be doing like a high intensity, like 95% effort. Yep. Well, how many much volume should you do? It has a guide. It says, really, if you're doing 90% or more, you should probably only be doing four working reps in that session. Yeah, okay. All right? Um, you can do as many as, as six to eight. So it gives you like an effective guide. It gives you that. like an effective okay, guide, cool. basically. Yeah. Um, so that's why a lot of times we'll do like four sets of one or two sets of two because it's still hanging around that four rep range mm-hmm. up at that high intensity. Any more, you're going to probably burn out and not get quite as effective um, workout. Any less, you're not getting enough stimulus needed mm-hmm. for doing that little volume, right? So, um, you know, Prelopin's Tables is a nice guide. Um, there's plenty of research out there that talks about trained and untrained athletes and how much volume they need. Um, so again, it's a huge, uh, it's actually a huge question, Deb, but there's some of the things that we try to think about exercise selection. Um, you know, the intensities that we knew, what part of the season is the athlete in what type of sport, whether they have a preseason and an off season or whether they just train year round, uh, like a rugby season is very different from a powerlifter going for a comp year to year. Like it depends on how many comps that they want to do. It it depends on, on, on a lot of stuff, the type of strength sport that they do, how many comps that they might have in a year might uh, affect how many times you can peak, uh, how you prep for a competition. There's there's so many different variations in there. Um, and that sort of leads into her final question, which was, um, does this apply to older populations or should they be prioritizing other things such as um, mobility, cardio, things like that? And I would say, yeah, it abs- all of the yeah. core principles apply to all demographics. Yep. What you need to take into consideration, and the main one as people get older, is recovery, yep. right? So, and and total, uh, you know, recoverable volume. So, for example, someone that's in their mid-30s can recover usually a lot faster than someone that's in their 60s or 70s, right? Mm-hmm. And I talked about this with Dad on the Strength Institute podcast, last podcast, yep. in training for his um, world championships in powerlifting. Uh, he could not handle the amount of volume that someone in their 30s that would be training would be training four to six times a week probably for that. Mm -hmm. Dad could only train twice a week because any more than that, he would start to get run down. We only train three times a week in the last four weeks before the comp. And even then, on the the second last week, he was really struggling to to recover and we had to decrease the amount of stuff that we're doing per session. So the main thing that I would tell you to consider, Dev, with, with training is to make sure you're recovering. If you're recovering well, all the principles apply. Okay. It, it circles back to that very first thing we talked about specificity. Yeah. It um it there are good guidelines, but it changes person to person. Mm-hmm. So if you need more recovery, have more. If you need less, have less. It yeah. really just depends on what you're able to tolerate. Absolutely. And then and yeah. also she asked, you know, should we be you know prioritizing other things like mobility and cardio? And again, that comes down to the person. So I think that it's really important. Um, and you're not at this age at all, Deb. But as people get like older, older, um, you know, it's really important that. Uh, we don't want them to fall because you know when people that are in their 80s and stuff have a fall yep. and break a hip, that's when things can go down really, really fast. Yep. So yeah, if you as people approach those older age groups, one, just lifting weights is going to help with proprioception, yep. bone density, all those fantastic things. But yeah, you can absolutely work at doing a little bit more mobility work to make sure that you're able to get those joints through a good range of motion. You want to have a good... Um, base level of, of conditioning. You say cardio, but like just conditioning. So like, yeah. again, we're not expecting someone that's 85 to go out there and do, uh, you know, do Tabata sprint sets on an air bike. Mm-hmm. But if they're still able to walk for 15 or 20 minutes every day, that's fantastic, right? Yeah. They're keeping a certain level of fitness up. Well, like we talked about as one of the first questions, just your general cardiovascular health improves your quality of life and your lifespan by by quite a bit. So the fact that you, you would be doing weight training is fantastic, but just generally increasing like you don't have to do cardio but generally increasing your overall activity will just increase your general quality of life as well live longer live stronger 
That's it. Yeah. Live long, be strong. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Awesome. So I, I, th I think to the answer all, all of your questions, it depends <laughs> on a lot of stuff. Depends. It depends. It just depends on the specificity. It depends of, of, of your goal. It depends on what you're going for, what type of sport, uh, how, how serious you are, whether you're a weekend warrior or you're, you're taking uh, your athletic endeavors very seriously. It really just depends. You can get hyper-specific with so much stuff, but you need to know what the stuff is first. Yeah. Spe specificity. Specificity. Yeah. Awesome. Guys, thanks so much for tuning in. Please like, subscribe, follow, share, do all that cool stuff, comment, um, help the channel grow, helps us. And, and if you have any more questions, yeah. Comment down below. Put them in the comments. If they're good questions, we'll answer them in the next questions and answers podcast. Yeah. Uh, we'll put some of the links in in this one. And if you guys want to know anything else cool about us or sport, health, fitness, anything at all, let us know what your questions are. We'd love to answer them. We Absolutely. like these podcasts. Yeah. Oh. They're good fun. Awesome, guys. Thanks so much. And we will see you next time on The Big Flex. See you later.